This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the many varieties of alpine thistle in the Mountain West. I'd always been really interested in what species are actually out there, in particular the alpine species of thistles in the southern Rocky Mountains. I would go out to these mountain peaks and just be like amazed at the morphological diversity, but they were all called the same species. I always wanted to tackle that problem, that question, and finally was able to do that when I undertook my PhD. So it was really exciting. Today we are speaking with Jennifer Ackerfield, the head curator of natural history collections and the associate director of biodiversity research at Denver Botanic Gardens. I am in charge of uh, overseeing all of the collections. We have plant collections, we have fungal collections, and we have a small insect collection. I manage a team of people here who also work with these collections. Uh, I have a research program where I have graduate students working on various taxonomic questions related to the flora of Colorado. And I conduct floristic inventories across the state, looking at the floristic diversity in Colorado. And all of that culminated years ago in me writing The Flora of Colorado. Circium scopularum, or mountain thistle, was long thought to be the only species of thistle occurring in the alpine tundra. Molecular, morphological, and geographical evidence now support the recognition of many species of thistles in the alpine tundra of the southern Rocky Mountains, including a unique species right here in the LaSalle Mountains of southeast Utah. Well, I was looking across all of North America. I wanted to do the first full comprehensive study of thistles across North America, which was a huge undertaking. (laughs) There's a a lot of variation, a lot of species. There are about 100 species of native thistles in North America. Oftentimes it's really unfortunate for thistles because when people picture a thistle, they picture the bad ones. They picture the invasive weedy species that come in and take over and are not good for our ecosystems and are are bad. They're bad species to have in your landscape. But our native thistles are actually really important components of our landscapes. They are important resources of food for many pollinators, for animals like pica that eat alpine thistles. They actually really have a lot of important ecosystem function. Our native thistles all across North America in general are not super widespread. They're pretty locally restricted in range. We have many species that are rare And we actually have a few species in North America that are even considered endangered and on the endangered species list. Especially out in California, there are species of thistles that are only found from two serpentine seeps outside of San Francisco. And that's it. So they're really cool. Yeah. And I mean, for the untrained eye or botanist, I mean, how, what really distinguishes an invasive species from a non-invasive? Can you tell the difference visually? 
I can tell the difference. You can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, and I think most people can, it, especially if you had a photo okay. of one that you could reference. Our two big ones here in North America are Canada thistle and musk thistle. Okay. And uh, there are really no native species of thistle that look like musk thistle. That one really stands out, but it's also super charismatic, very photogenic. And then Canada thistle, that's one that's really bad. It has these very deep underground rhizomes. And so it can come into an area and really outcompete a lot of native plants and form what we call a monoculture. So it's just it in an area. So that's one that we, we really want to keep an eye on. Yeah. Um, and in most states, it's on a watch list so that if it's located, you have to come up with some sort of plan for how you're going to get rid of it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you're talking a bit about thistles that are in alpine areas. Is, is, is that a generalization? Are most thistles found at a certain elevation? Oh, gosh, no. That's okay. the great thing about thistles. Thistles go where thistles want. I did another study looking at the diversification and drivers of that diversification of thistles across North America. And, and that's really what it came down to is thistles are just masters of ecological opportunity. A space is open. It's kind of arid. Boom. I'm going to go there. I'm going to take over. One of the fascinating things of, about thistles is that you find them all the way from sea level to alpine. But again, each species is really pretty restricted in range. It's like, this is my little area. This is where I'm growing. And they don't really overlap too much in distribution. Okay. So if you find a thistle that's just everywhere, it's probably an invasive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the species Circium tucanicavatsicum, which is the species of thistles only found in the LaSalle's, uh -huh. uh, nowhere else. What, first of all, how and when was it first noticed? Mm -hmm. And what makes it different than other thistles? How do you know it's a different yeah. species? Yeah. No, that's a really good question. A long, long, long time ago, in the early 1900s, this guy named Per Axel Redberg, who was a botanist at the New York Botanical Garden and an expert on the flora of the Southern Rocky Mountains and adjacent plains, did a trip out to Utah and made a collection of this thistle. Huh. At that time, there was another thistle that had been described called Circium scopularum, which is a mountaintop thistle, basically. And because... I can only assume that they were on a mountaintop and it looked sort of similar to this thing. So they labeled it as Circium scopularum. But you have to remember, too, that, you know, we're talking about the early 1900s, right? There weren't as many resources available to us as there are now. And so that was as close as they could get to calling it something. Also, thistles, when you collect them, they dry brown. And you can't really capture the morphology, like the overall appearance and shape and size really is obscured once you have collected that specimen, pressed it flat, dried it and put it on paper, you lose a lot of the details. So, you know, we're working with, with these two factors, right? 
not represented well on this piece of paper and just not enough resources. So they called it the best thing they could, mountaintop thistle, Cerceum scopularum. I mean, the the mountaintops and the alpine areas in Colorado, were they mm-hmm. also called the same thing? Or had yes. they been divided out? They were the same They were all alpine. Cerceum scopularum as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where Cerceum scopularum came from. Right. So basically an alpine thistle was all yeah. generic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're like, ah, yeah. oh, it's probably just the same thing. Yeah. Well... That was the group that I was like, how is this all the same thing? These are actually very distinctly different in appearance. And each of these distinctly different in appearance alpine thistles also occupy their own distinct range. So I decided to test this hypothesis that they were all the same species. So I had samples from all throughout the Rocky Mountains, in the Alpine, and I included the LaSalle thistle in this because I thought that for sure was a very odd outlier. And I did some systematic work on it. So I basically extracted DNA, sequenced some genes, and then analyzed those so that you can see the relationships of all of the different species to each other, which are more closely related, you know, which are not. And what I found was that that LaSalle thistle was clearly not Cerceum scopularum. They were not closely related at all. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, great. It's not Cerceum scopularum. So what is it? And did you you, uh, parse out different uh, species within the the alpine of Colorado as well? Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. Okay. So it was all part of a bigger, bigger picture, right? Um, I actually was able to pull out two other uh, morphologically distinct populations as, dis- as, as new species that really, I mean, had just been hiding in plain sight. All of these things people had been seeing but they were just all calling them Cerceum scopularum, Cerceum scopularum. But then when you have all of these lines of evidence, you've got genetic evidence, you have geographic range, you have morphological evidence, you can't really deny the fact that they're actually distinct um, species. And so I was able to name the funky thistle, Cerceum funky. And people go, "That's, that's a really... Funny name, but I actually named it uh, for my advisor, Dr. Vicki Funk. <laughs> oh, really? That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a dual purpose thing. Yeah. It also yeah. is really funky. Yeah. And then I um, was able to pull out a, a thistle from the Culebra range, which is in uh, southern Colorado. Okay. And uh, that's Circeum Culebra NC. And nice. so that left the South thistle. Uh, so, so I went back and I kind of compared all of the known thistles that had been named from the area just to make sure that it hadn't been named already and forgotten about. Right, right. Right. And it hadn't. It just been going as good old Cerceum scopularum. That's fascinating. Yeah. Now, so and I was like, this is a new species. Cool. Or what kind of process do you have to go through to claim a new species? Is it a is it a big deal in the in the uh, botanical world? Uh, I do actually think it's a big deal. 
because what we're doing is documenting biodiversity and we're documenting undescribed biodiversity. And when we think about it from like a management standpoint, you know, now we know that we have this thing that is unique to this area. And that's the only place in the world that it's found. If we didn't know that, we might manage that differently than we do now. We might pull them all out of the ground, but now we know that this is actually a really cool, like unique species to this place and this place only. So we're going to manage that a little differently. And so that's why I think it's really important to be able to describe these new species and accurately, right, with mm-hmm. with as much um, evidence as possible to back that up, that, yeah, you know, we need to recognize this as something distinct from this over here. It sounds like thistles, they have a very unique geographical area. They are separate separate uh, within, you know, if you look at their genes, their mm-hmm. biogenetics are unique. So they're definitely unique species. Um, but it is interesting that they have their own territory. Now, do the invasives, do they come in if there's a native species already kind of established? Will they still come in? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so you will see the invasive species co-occur with, with native species of thistles. And, and I should say by native, I mean prior to European settlement is, right. is what I mean by native. Okay. Um, because Europeans also transported things around. Right. But I have not seen any documentation of a non-native thistle in the Alpine. Really? Yeah, they have so far, and I say so far because who knows? <laughs> yeah, uh, they haven't gotten up that high. So. Interesting. So they are lower down in general. That's that's very unique. And I wonder, you know, the, the, we've got several isolated mountain ranges. You know, in this in the southeast Utah desert, we have oh, yeah. the LaSalles, we have the Henrys, we have the Abajos, <laughs> and I'm wondering if you've thought of checking out those thistles. And, oh, yes. and if, if, if there are thistles, native thistles, are they, are they different than, than the toque thistle or the, sorry, what's the alpine thistle again? Oh, scopularum. Scopulara, like, mm-hmm. like just, I mean, you never know. There could be up there too, and they could be different. Yeah. Well, I did test those. Oh, and you did? You are, you are correct that they are different. Oh, cool. Yeah. Up by Salt Lake City. Uh, there's Eaton's thistle. Oh, neat. Circium eutonii. There's Murdoch's thistle, Circium murdochii. They are close, but they don't overlap in range. Oh, that's so interesting. And then down in the Tushars, I was able to show that this thing that had been called a variety of something else anyway should be a distinct species, um, Circium harrisonii. Mm-hmm. So it's only found in the Tushars, which is a really neat area. Thistles kind of go up, right? They they somehow made their way up these mountains, and then isolation, yeah, isolation, isolation for millions of years. They have become genetically distinct from their progenitors, and are now like their own species. And these alpine thistles are more or less above treeline everywhere. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very very cool. Okay. Do they basically die off in winter and come back? That's one of my questions, actually. Okay. Because if you take 
a little step back, well, maybe a big step back, and you think about the alpine, yeah. right? You think about these tiny little plants. And then here's this giant thistle. Right. Why? It's the only thing up there that's like that. It's huge. Huh. How does it survive from year to year to year? So I have a hypothesis that they actually survive as a basal rosette with a really deep taproot. And then when conditions are right, they flower, they flower once and then they die. So that's called a monocarpic perennial. Your monument plants, the tall mountain gentians, mm -hmm. those are another example of a plant that does that as well. I'd love to start studying that, set up some like long-term monitoring, go back to the same individual year after year after year and really see, you know, when that basil rosette decides to flower. There are other examples of alpine species exhibiting this behavior in order to grow at these crazy elevations. Nobody has ever really studied it or documented it. Okay. And what I would love to do, because alpine thistles occur all around the world, and even in the alpine outside of Mexico City, there are alpine thistles. Like, I'd love to look at every single one and see, do they all exhibit this same survival mechanism that allowed them to establish in a land of tiny plants? What's next? Do you have more ideas planned? Oh, I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> because the good thing about research is anytime you do it, you get more questions. Of course. Yeah. And so there are, of course, more questions to be answered. There are more species complexes to tease apart. I do think that there are definitely more undescribed species of thistles, in particular in Nevada. Ooh, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. A lot of isolated mountain A lot of isolated mountaintops. I think that there's a lot of work left to be done. Very cool. I laid a good foundation, and now I can have students work on little pieces of the puzzle. I was just going to say the name, Tucanica botsicum. It's got a little catchy ring to it if you say it like Tucanica botsicum. I really thought about the name for a long time because... You know, you don't get a lot of opportunities to name new species and you want to make it a meaningful name that conveys something about the appearance or the place or commemorates the work that someone has done in a group. You wanted to, to honor something there. And, and so I did think about the name a lot. And then I started thinking about, well, well what about the youth and their use of the land and, and what around there pays homage to that. And yeah. Tukanikovats, place where the sun sets last. And I thought that's beautiful. Well, Jennifer, I really appreciate you talking with Science Moab and creating our own special thistle for here in the LaSalle's. It's, it's pretty unique. Well, thank you, Peggy. Super fascinating. Thanks. This episode of Science Moab was sponsored in part by the Grand Canyon Trust. 
To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.